Welcome to episode nine of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. I'm Arup Sen and I'm joined by Simon Lovegrove. Hello, Simon. Hello, Arup. Today, we will begin with a look at the future of UK financial services with Jonathan Herbst, including uh, a look at the Treasury's Wholesale Markets Review. Uh, we then head across the Atlantic to speak to Sam Raymer about the Biden administration's memo on establishing the fight against corruption, uh, before then moving across the Pacific uh, to speak to John Ireland about changes to uh, the Australian exemptions regime, which uh, in turn affects market access into that jurisdiction. And we then close with a discussion with Sun Hong in China about the financial crime regime in that jurisdiction. But before we kick off, as ever, over to Simon for some of the big RT stories this month. Thanks, Arup. Uh, since last month's podcast, there's been quite a few important developments. And as you mentioned a moment ago, um, there's been a number of papers on UK regulatory reform, and Jonathan Hurst will pick these up in a moment. Also, we saw this month a joint Bank of England PRA and FCA discussion paper on the very important topic of diversity and inclusion. The thinking in this discussion paper is intended to begin a discussion with the financial services industry on the ways these regulators can clarify their expectations and set higher standards on diversity and inclusion. Significantly, the FCA also published this month its first policy statement on the UK investment firm's prudential regime, that's policy statement 21.6, and we'll shortly be issuing a podcast series on this topic. For those listeners monitoring CP 21.9, changes to the UK MIFID's conduct and organisational requirements, we saw this month the publication of a related statutory instrument, the Markets in Financial Instruments, Capital Markets Amendment Regulations 2021. The month also saw important papers on ESG, and the FCA issued two consultation papers on climate-related disclosures, CP2117 and CP2118. On the EU side, the Commission issued a proposal for a European green bonds regime, and we've issued an online briefing note on that. Also, there was published this month the Financial Services Act 2021 Commencement Number 2 Regulations 2021 in, which brought into force on the 1st of July certain provisions of the Act. This included bringing into force Section 40 of the Act, requiring firms offering clearing services to do so in accordance with fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory and transparent terms. In terms of other horizon scanning for this month, the FCA's business plan is due on the 15th of July. So that's a brief rundown of what's happened this month. Back to you, Arup. Thanks, Simon. And as ever, plenty, <laughs> plenty uh, for our readers uh, and listeners uh, to tuck into there. So, um, but without further ado, let's kick off this month's show. So over to Simon and Jonathan with a look at the future of UK financial services. In this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Jonathan Hurst, Partner and Global Head of Financial Services. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Simon. Jonathan, it's great to have you with us. Um, For today's podcast, I just want to cover UK regulatory reform and just focusing on three questions. So my first question is, there were a number of papers published on UK regulatory reform, which coincided with the Chancellor's recent Mansion House speech. 
This included a paper from the Treasury called A New Chapter on Financial Services. What was your take on this paper? To me, it seemed more aspirational than anything else. Yes, I can see I can see why you might say that. I think that's a little unfair. Um, there was actually buried away in it quite a lot. And effectively, it reconfirms what the Chancellor said uh, uh, last autumn, which is that they want to go in the sort of the direction of opening the UK as a proper global financial hub. And so buried away in there, there's a discussion of the Singapore agreement, the negotiations with uh, Switzerland, you know, the aims in relation to ESG and the prospectus um, developments and all the rest of it, and obviously fintech. So in a sense, nothing new, but on the other hand, a very clear direction of travel, particularly and buried away in both the paper and, and the Chancellor's speech, you know, there's a, an open recognition that there is not going to be a comprehensive equivalence agreement with the EU. And I think the macro message is, okay, fair enough, that's how life's going to be. The UK is now going to plough its furrow uh, in accordance with the overall strategic objectives of the Treasury. Thanks, Jonathan. And just now moving on to the overseas persons exclusion. I know you've been looking into this. Can you give our listeners an update as to what's been going on? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. So um, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury, John Glenn, spoke um, yesterday on the 8th of uh, July in relation to this. And there's a, I think what he basically said was there is a paper due out shortly in terms of feedback to the Treasury's consultation on the overseas regime from late last year. Difficult to be absolutely clear what they're going to do. I think the message is uh, two things. One, they're going to consult further because it's not entirely clear how the overseas person exclusion is used as a matter of fact. And secondly, they are open to what I would describe in perhaps in their terms as rational change, you know, looking at, you know, what is good for the UK market as a whole, both from investor protection and a systemic stability perspective. Um, but I think equally, and it's really important to say this, constant emphasis on the UK being an open market. And so I think the Treasury want to send the message that, yes, there, there may be reforms, you know, later in the year. And I think there was talk of sort of Q4 reforms, but they want to also send the message that the UK is going to remain an open market. Now, the, the devil is going to be in the detail. We're expecting that consultation very shortly. Thanks, Jonathan. And there's my final question. Um, you would have seen the HMT consultation on the Wholesale Markets Review. We're going to do a more in-depth podcast on the proposals in this paper uh, later. But for now, for you, what are some of the key takeaways? Well, I said I'd make one sort of meta point to begin with, which is it's a really important paper. Uh, I mean, I'd be quite open, you know, like a lot of other people, uh, I thought, oh, right, well, there's the sort of general opening paper we just talked about, and then there's the Wholesale Markets Review and a couple of other reviews, probably not going to say very much. I was absolutely wrong on that. Um, there's, an, there's a tremendous amount in this paper, and without going into all the detail, we're going to do that uh, in our second um, podcast. A few headlines. Firstly, a really serious attempt by the government to move away from some of the aspects of pre- and post-trade transparency and market in infrastructure regulation, which has been viewed as quantitative in an inappropriate way. I mean, to give a couple of examples of that, um, the, the systematic internalizer test they're going to have now, going back to the qualitative approach from the FIN1, 
and in relation to the ancillary services test in relation to commodity derivatives end users moving away from some of the quantitative tests. So I think that I think that's sort of theme number one, quantitative to qualitative. I think the second thing is some really serious reform of some of the key areas. So just to give a couple of examples of that, um, you know, the proposal to remove the securities trading obligation completely because it's viewed as inappropriate in relation to an efficient liquid market and to reform the derivatives trading obligation significantly and bring that into line with EMIR. So I think that's the second theme. And the, I think the third is a real openness to you know, looking at all of the more complicated aspects of market infrastructure regulation under MIFID II, and you know, to, to, to think carefully about what is a rational model. So I think the sort of message of the paper, and we'll talk about it in more detail on the other on the second podcast, is we're not about to have a bonfire of regulation. That's not what the UK is about. It wants to have high standards, but equally, the UK is not going to be tied to what it views as inappropriate regulation. And the final example I give of that is in relation to market data, where you know, people will be well aware there's the 15 minute rule for free publication. And they've sort of acknowledged that it doesn't really work economically in their view, and therefore they're planning to abolish it. So all around big news, really important paper. Thanks, Jonathan, that's great. In this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Sam Raymer. Sam is a former federal and state prosecutor. He's now a partner in our Washington office. He's a member of our regulations, investigations, securities, compliance, and white collar crime team, and also head of congressional investigations. Hi, Sam. Great that you're here. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Sam. On 3rd of June, the Biden administration issued a memorandum on establishing the fight against corruption as a core United States national security interest. To start off with, can you just tell us a little bit more about this new memorandum? Sure. Um, It's actually quite a groundbreaking memorandum. It's not quite what we've seen before in the world of corruption, anti-money laundering. It designates corruption as a matter of national security and tasks certain federal agencies with coming up with a report due in 200 days, so right around Christmas, that uh, will task them with finding new ways to handle uh, anti-corruption and um, um, money laundering and financial malfeasance around the world. promotes partnerships between the private sector and civil society to advocate for anti-corruption measures. It's meant to bolster the capacity of domestic and international institutions and multilateral bodies to focus on establishing global anti-corruption norms, asset recovery, promoting financial transparency. And what's really interesting about it are the agencies that are being mentioned in being tasked with this report and I think are going to get enlisted in a new front against corruption and money laundering by the United States. Those agencies include the Department of Justice as is is normal, uh, the Department of Treasury as is normal, but they're also including the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Homeland Security, and most notably, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Agency. 
which means that the fight against corruption will now be fought in the somewhat shadowy world of national security agencies. Thanks, Sam. I just want to move now. Just tell us a little bit more about how the US government is responding to this new agenda. Well, already FinCEN, the Financial Central Enforcement Network, um, has already come out with a guidance in which they are, I'm sorry, it's the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and they've come up with a new set of priorities and guidances to match up with this with this particular uh, memorandum. The, in addition, the nominee for general counsel of the Department of Treasury, a man named Neil McBride, is a very strong ex-prosecutor who I actually worked with in Washington, D.C., who knows uh, anti-corruption, who knows anti-money laundering efforts and is, is uh, sort of a hawk on those issues. Gary Gensler has become the head of the SEC. He's very strong against, against money laundering. And so what you have is the put together, the, the, the coalition, not only of national will, but also personnel necessary to carry out a very aggressive anti-corruption regime within the United States, which means an increased amount of prosecution and investigation in the years to come. That's a really interesting point, um, Sam. And just moving on now, um, in your opinion, what are the implications of this new initiative for the US financial services industry? Well, they can expect a lot more uh, investigation, a lot more questions about what they do. And also they may have more intersection with national security agencies. And so because of the designation of corruption as a national security priority, it means that, in my opinion, what you'll see is the traditional anti-money laundering investigators, the corruption investigators, will have greater ability to push national security authorities to use their tools, their, their national security investigative tools, in order to investigate malfeasance, financial malfeasance around the world. They're doing this in order to help buttress U.S. sanctions, to help go after um, foreign governments that are using the illicit money network around the world. And they're doing this in order to recover funds that uh, the governments need because of the huge amounts of stimulus that they've had to do because of COVID. And so the implications are you're going to see increased cooperation between national security agencies. You're going to see increased cooperation between law enforcement networks around the world. And implications are for companies are greater cross-border investigations, greater interference with business decisions, and um, more compliance review. Thanks, Sam. I just want to pick up on a point you just mentioned earlier, uh, cross-border investigations. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit more of how will the new focus on corruption affect cross-border investigations? They'll get more intense. There's going to be, when you start talking about a national security focus, national security agencies around the world have ways of talking to each other that sometimes financial investigators don't. And so there are methods of communication, uh, avenues of communication between agencies that exist that might not have normally been involved in a financial uh, investigation. And if they're getting involved, that means that the uh, governments around the world will be more likely, not less likely, more likely to cooperate, which means that cross-border investigations will not only become more common, but they'll become more wide-ranging because it will be much easier for investigators in order to get process and get information about transactions that cross the globe. The 
memo that the Biden administration issued specifically mentions uh, cross-border interactions. It's the international money laundering system that the Biden administration is targeting. And that means that cross-border investigations will have to increase. Thanks, Sam. As, as a final question, um, you mentioned earlier, the memo is, is groundbreaking, and I certainly agree with that. Um, what should companies and individuals do to prepare now? Well, if you haven't done a, com a compliance review in a few years in your company, the time for that review is now. Um, managers uh, should be speaking about to the staff about compliance, any messages about compliance and the severity, the seriousness with which management takes compliance should be done now. You should be keeping up with the, your SARS obligations. And if there are any holes in those uh, obligations, they should be covered up. I mean, you know, filled in immediately. And firms also should make sure that they've got appropriate customer identification programs. All the, cust all the firms that are doing business in the financial services world should be knowing their customer. That's really kind of the key here. If you know who your customer is and enables you to give you know, very good customer service, and at the same time, it also helps you fend off um, your financial network, your financial services as being um, abused by surreptitious money launderers and uh, corrupt individuals. In terms of worldwide bribery, you should be conducting um, uh, and vetting um, third-party customers, I mean, sorry, third-party contractors and um, subcontractors uh, for all kinds of bribery and the controls to keep track of money, to keep track of um, uh, how payments are being made, especially in foreign governments that are um, that tend to be high risk for corruption, all that should be intensified now. And by Christmas, we're going to have a set of recommendations being made by these agencies, which means that they'll probably already uh, be put into action. Thanks, Sam, that's been really helpful. We're, we'll catch up with you just before Christmas to see how this has progressed, but thanks very much, Sam, that was really helpful. My pleasure, thank you, Simon. I'm joined today by uh, John Ireland, a partner in our Sydney office. Hi, John. Hi, Simon. John, to, to begin with, there have been some recent announcements about changes to the exemption regime for firms looking to access the Australian market. Before we get into them, can you just give us a brief overview of the background to the exemptions? Certainly, Simon. The um... The background is that the provision of financial services to Australian clients generally requires a financial services license to be held unless an exemption can be relied on. So financial services license or AFS license. And in this context, there's a broad range of financial services which foreign firms or FFSPs deliver to Australian clients and which are regulated. Examples are broking, advisory and portfolio management as well as pre-marketing services in connection with the provision of those regulated offerings. Now, prior to March 2020, ASIC offered two types of relief from holding an AFS license to FFSPs who provided financial services to wholesale clients in Australia. Firstly, there was the sufficient equivalence relief. 
This was provided under various class orders for certain FSSPs regulated by an overseas regulatory regime deemed sufficiently equivalent to Australia's regulatory regime. Now, this included the UK, the US, Hong Kong, Singapore, Germany and Luxembourg. Now, secondly, there was something called the limited connection relief. And this was for an FFSP or foreign firm deemed to be carrying on a financial services business in Australia only because it was inducing persons in Australia to use its financial services. And marketing is one way that that can arise. Now, in March 2020, following extensive consultation with industry, ASIC announced its new regulatory framework for foreign firms. That new regime comprised, number one, a new foreign AFS licensing regime. And secondly, an exemption from AFS licensing for providers of funds management financial services who seek to induce certain types of professional investors. And that was referred to commonly as the funds management relief. Now, as part of this, ASIC had implemented a transitional period of two years until the 31st of March 2022, allowing foreign firms to rely on their existing sufficient equivalence relief or under the limited connection relief until then. Thanks, John. Uh, that's brilliant that you set the scene. I just now want to do a deeper dive. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the changes that have been announced? Well, um, just recently on the 11th of May, 2021, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, delivered the Australian federal budget for 21-22. Now, that federal budget contained an important announcement as to future changes to the licensing and relief regime for FFSPs. And in particular, the budget papers noted that the government was proposing to consult on options to restore the previously well-established regulatory relief for foreign firms, which were licensed and regulated in jurisdictions with comparable financial services rules or have limited connection to Australia. And this is intended to reduce the duplicative regulatory requirements and was limited to FFSPs that deal with wholesale clients and professional investors. Now those budget papers went on to say that the government was planning to consult on options to create a fast track licensing process for FFSPs who wish to establish more permanent operations in Australia, and that that fast tracking was intended to shorten application timeframes and to reduce barriers to entry from the perspective of the Australian market. Now, that was a key announcement in the budget papers. And while the prospect of restoring the previous relief regime would be welcomed by many FFSPs, it was also effectively signaling a reversal of the new regulatory framework, and in particular, the new foreign AFS license. Now that reversal not only has implications, of course, for those foreign firms who've already been granted a foreign license, but also for the many firms who've been in the process of making their license applications. So as a consequence, ASIC, the local regulator, has since extended the existing transitional equivalence relief and limited connection relief um, period until the 31st of March 2023. Thanks, John. I just want to pick up on one of the, the points you just mentioned a moment ago. So what does this mean for firms who have already made applications to ASIC for a foreign license? 
Well, since, again, since the budget announcement, ASIC has stated that it has paused on its assessment of the many license applications that have been lodged by foreign firms. And that pause is now pending the outcome of the government's uh, announced reform process. Um, now that pause um, has been communicated from letters directly uh, from ASIC to applicants and, and is a pause unless applicants request that ASIC continue with the assessment of their applications. So for FFSPs who've submitted their applications already with ASIC, they will need to consider whether they want to request that ASIC continues to process. Um, ASIC has noted that foreign firms that have been or are granted a foreign AFS license will be able to continue to operate their financial services businesses on Australia under the license pending any legislative changes arising from the government's consultation. And we do understand that those um, changes will be coming through in the form of um, statutory amendment rather than further ASIC relief. We have also observed that many applicants have decided to hold off on submitting their foreign AFS license applications where those haven't yet been lodged until Treasury has completed its consultation. And as for foreign firms who had previously relied on exemptions, they can continue to do so since, as mentioned before, ASIC has extended the regime until the 31st of March 2023. Okay, John, and just to go a little bit further, can you just say a little bit more about firms who do not already hold an exemption? What, what's their position? Well, ASIC has helpfully clarified this as well. Um, this was certainly a, um, another key question that was raised in the immediate um, period after the budget papers were released. And we now know that during the extended transition period and pending the outcome of the federal government's review and consultation on the new regime, um, ASIC has confirmed that it will consider um, firstly, new applications for individual temporary licensing relief, as well as new standard or foreign AFS license applications, and those being from entities that can't rely on the existing relief. Um, now, this is expected to form the new transitionary arrangement effectively until any legislative changes arising from the consultation become clearer. Um, those entities that don't already have an exemption will therefore need to consider whether they wish to apply for an exemption or a foreign AFS license. Having said that, applying for a foreign AFSL is quite an involved process and does include a number of the checks um, in relation to fit and proper and um, evidencing those checks that have somewhat extended the process. It may therefore make sense um, where possible for entities that don't already have an exemption to apply for individual temporary licensing regime, um, regime relief uh, until Treasury's position becomes clearer. Okay, thanks, John. Uh, one final question, just picking up on your, your final point there about the Treasury position becoming clearer. Um, when do we expect to hear more about this? So our, our current understanding is that the Treasury consultation will be undertaken in two rounds. So there's going to be an initial round in relation to high level options and that, that should be imminent. And then in the next um, few months, there should be a further round um, in connection with which draft amending legislation will be released. 
As we understand it at present, Treasury will therefore be releasing imminently its first round consultation paper on the options in relation to the restoration of the sufficient equivalents and limited connection relief. Um, those forms are likely to be modified compared to the previous regime, um, but not substantially as we understand it. And we'll certainly be keeping a watchful eye for any further announcements on that front. Thanks, John. That's really, really helpful. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much, Simon. In this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Sun Hong, a partner who is head of our Shanghai office. Hi, Sun. Hi, Simon. Hi. Hi. Um, Sun, I just want to touch base with you on recent developments in China. In particular, I understand that in early June, China's central bank published the draft amended anti-money laundering law of China for public consultation. And I know that part of the background to this was the FATF follow-up report that was published um, last year. But to begin with, what are the major changes introduced in the draft amended anti-money laundering law? Overall, the draft AML law is more sophisticated in terms of the overall system and mechanisms on tackling money laundering and terrorism financing compared to the current law. Uh, in the interest of time, I would only touch upon a few major changes introduced thereunder, um, just in cases of interest. The first one is about the AML, AML obligos consolidated and specified in the new draft. Um, by way of AML obligos, I mean financial institutions and other non-financial institutions which are designated by PBOC to be subject to AML obligations, including primarily the obligations of know your client and the obligations of reporting large sum and suspicious transactions. The current AML law contains a short list of AML obligos, uh, which has been significantly expanded in the last decade or so by way of various subsequent re regulations. Therefore, the market has to refer to the provisions scattered in different regulations in order to find out whether a particular type of non-financial institution is subject to the AML obligations. The draft AML law now tries to provide a comprehensive list of AML obligations so as to provide a clearer scope of the market players who are subject to the AML obligations. So obviously a large group on the list is financial institutions. And the draft also specifies various non-financial institutions including, for instance, the real estate developers and brokers, accounting firms, precious metal exchanges or precious metal dealers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with that said, the draft doesn't provide an exhaustive list, as we note that various other non-financial institutions, which are regarded uh, as subject to the AML obligations in other regulations are left out from the list. For instance, the bank card, credit clearing institutions, fund clearing houses, and institutions engaging in fund distribution, etc. So I'm not sure whether the final version will pick up those entities, uh, 
But anyway, I think the intention is quite clear, is to give the market a clearer scope of the institutions who shall uh, comply with the ML obligations. So this is the first one. The second one is the reporting obligations extended to ordinary entities and individuals. Uh, in addition to the ML obligations, uh, we all know they are subject to quite stringent uh, obligations on reporting. Under the current draft, ordinary entities and individuals um, who are only mean to provide assistance to ML investigations under the current regime are required to report certain type of transactions when we come on to dealing with a uh, uh, large sum of cash. So according to the draft, an ordinary entity or individual shall report the receipt or payment of a large sum of cash, not processed through any financial or payment institution to a particular organization we call China AML Monitoring and Analysis Center. That is a center to analyze uh, relevant information reported by AML obligors. So now ordinary entity or individual are required to report cash transactions if it is a large sum of cash. So this reporting obligation um, must not be circumvented by intentionally splitting the larger sum into multiple payments of a smaller amounts. And the draft also provides that this is a quite stringent obligation must be complied with by entities and individuals. However, the draft doesn't provide any particular uh, threshold in terms of the amount consent. And we believe uh, at later stage, implementation rules will be put in place to set out the parameters of such reporting obligations and the various thresholds to be applied. And the third point, which is interesting uh, also, is about uh, identifying and reporting beneficiary owners by market players. Um, obviously, identifying the beneficiary owners of clients is one of the key uh, AML obligations of AML obligors during the loyal client activities. The draft now requires market players in China to report the information of their beneficiary owners through um, an information reporting platform hosted by what we call SAMR, representing the State Administration for Market Regulation, which is the company registration authority in China. Uh, currently, this platform hosts uh, a huge amount of information about companies in China, but they, those are primarily their basic corporate information. Under the draft in the future, the market players will need to report the beneficiary owners of them through this platform so that the information will be hosted on, on this platform and be accessible to the um, AML or regulator, meaning the PBOC. Currently in the draft, it doesn't elaborate how to identify the beneficiary owner. And um, we noticed that the PBOC um, ever circulated a notice on identifying client uh, for AML purpose, but that only applies to financial institutions and the other AML obligations rather than uh, applicable to ordinary enterprises in the market. So we suspect in the future, either the company registration authority will put in place an implementation measure 
to set out the regulatory parameters in order to regulate the practice in that respect, uh, or otherwise um, the uh, PBOC may uh, publish uh, further information or further notice to regulate that regime. But anyway, I think um, the current provisions in the uh, PBOC notice, uh, as I referred to just now, may uh, by and large replicate it in the, in the new regulations in order to sort of regulate the market practice. And the, the fourth point I, I would like to uh, mention is uh, under the draft AML law, um, increased monetary penalties will be imposed on uh, AML non-compliance. So under the draft, uh, more significant penalty are imposed on uh, obligate, obligors who are in violation of the, um, uh, the, the obligations. So for instance, if an AML obligor, uh, which is a financial institution, breaches the AML obligations, which then leads to money laundering or terrorism financing, then this financial institution may be subject to a fine of up to 10 million RMB. Well, under the current uh, AML law is only 5 million RMB. Uh, so that's kind of a significant increase. And in addition, directors, supervisors, or senior management, or other directly responsible personnel uh, of the uh, AML obligor will also be held liable and subject to um, a fine of up to RMB 1 million, whilst under the current legal regime is uh, half a million. In addition, other enterprises and individuals may also be subject to a fine of up to RMB 200,000 for any ML non-compliance. So these are the four key points I would like to share with you, um, just give you a little bit of flavor about the major changes introduced in the, in the draft. Thanks, Sun. That's really, really helpful. And your points are well made, particularly in relation to the significant increase um, in fines. For, for my last question, um, as you know, money laundering and terrorist financing have become global issues and leading to more collaboration between the enforcement agencies between different countries. Um, does the draft amended anti-money laundering law also contain provisions on international collaboration? Uh, yes, indeed. The current uh, AML law has only a light touch on international collaboration. Um, however, the draft AML law puts down more substantial content in this uh, respect. So I just want to mention a couple of points as well. Firstly, China, so the first principle um, sort of emphasized in the, in the draft is that China will provide international collaboration on AML in light of international treaties that China has signed up to or otherwise follow the principle of recipro uh, reciprocity. And the second point is about the ML regulator, which actually means the PBOC is authorized by the State Council to organize and coordinate on international collaboration on uh, anti-money laundering. And uh, the PBOC will attend international events and interact with uh, uh, overseas counterparts. Uh, when it comes down to um, cross-border judicial assistance, the existing laws and regulations will apply. And the third point is um, Chinese regulators may, um, in the course of an investigation of 
money laundering or terrorism financing, request overseas financial institutions who have opened correspondent bank accounts in China or otherwise had a close financial ties with China to provide cooperation in light of the principle of reciprocity or otherwise as a grade between the relevant um, uh, countries, between China and uh, the relevant foreign countries. So it is either follow the treaty or the principle of, of uh, reciprocity or otherwise a grade on an ad hoc basis between the relevant countries. So that's the re really the foundation of uh, international collaboration in this uh, respect. And the draft also makes it clear that financial institutions in China shall not comply with any request made by a foreign country on providing information from China or seizing, freezing, or transferring assets within China or taking other actions in breach of the foundations uh, as I referred to, or otherwise in the absence of any agreement with China. So in the absence of the foundation of international collaboration, financial institutions in China are not permitted to provide any uh, cooperation to foreign countries' uh, requests. If, however, a financial institution considers necessary to comply with such request, a report must be made to the competent financial industry regulator for approval before they move forward. And in case where a foreign country makes a justifiable request to a PRC financial institution for providing, say, summary compliance information or business operational information, the PRC financial in institution may follow this request, provided a prior report should be made to the competent uh, uh, financial industry regulator. If, however, the sovereignty, security, or interest of China, or the interest of any PRC citizen, legal person, or organization will be affected, then prior approval from the financial industry regulator must be obtained before moving forward. And there's also a one provision making reference to China's blocking measures. Uh, which were put in place uh, earlier this year. Um, in that blocking measures, um, there are a set of regulations um, providing in what circumstances um, the, reg uh, the orders or requests of foreign jurisdictions cannot be uh, complied with in China or must be um, restricted of application in China. So I won't come on to, to much detail in that respect, but there's a sort of general reference to that blocking measures in order to connect the legislation in order to, to make sure they all will all work together. Thanks, Sun. That was very helpful. Thank you, Simon. That brings this month's episode to a close. Thanks to all of our speakers for their contributions. And thanks to you as well for listening in. Do stay tuned uh, to regulationtomorrow.com uh, for more information and more regulated developments. And also in particular uh, for the forthcoming episode of Regulation Tomorrow Plus, which will take a deeper look at the wholesale markets review uh, that Jonathan alluded to in his section. But until then, uh, hope you stay well and we will see you soon.